Deuteronomy is the finale of the Pentateuch. We talked about that structure last time. These are Moses' final words before the people enter the promised land. Chapters 1 through 4 is the first main section of the book. It's the first speech that Moses gives. There are several speeches that are pretty long uh, that will then end, and that kind of is a divisional marker in the book. And it was mostly a historical review, which was uh, not redundant for us, but it was familiar because we just finished the book of Numbers in Exodus, and as well as a general plea in chapter four, listen to my words, pay attention to what I'm going to say. And then we move into the second major section, which is chapters 5 through 11, usually taken as a unit. I said before, Deuteronomy is very difficult to provide firm divisions, unlike one of Paul's epistles, maybe, where it's very clear when we're moving on to something else. But 5 through 11 is, is usually its, its own unit, focusing on the law, but general principles. So in our outline, we're going to call this general principles. Because when we hit chapter 12, he's going to start to get very specific, and we're going to have a lot more detailed laws about what to do in certain situations. But chapters 5 through 11 is, is the principles that undergird all of those laws. Tonight, we're going to get a review of the Ten Commandments. We're going to get, discuss the importance of soul loyalty to God. Some people have called chapters 5 and 6 meditations on the first two commandments of the Ten. Uh, there are some who divide the whole book of Deuteronomy according to the Ten Commandments. That sounds like a really cool idea. I really feel like you're pushing it, though. <laughs> you have to kind of cram some stuff in to make it work. But, it, I mean, it's obviously in there, and that's a, not a bad way to look at it. And in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said that those verses were the greatest commandment in the entire law. And that the entire Old Testament hung on these verses as well as a passage in Leviticus. But this one was first. That makes us a rather significant Bible study tonight. And we're going to actually focus on that because Jesus himself, as we discussed Sunday, is the fullness of God's revelation. So how Jesus understood and interpreted the law is of paramount importance, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say that Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament is the one we want to go with? I would agree. So tonight we're also going to look at these Ten Commandments and evaluate that law in light of the gospel, which is how we must. Remember Matthew 17, 5, the transfiguration? There was Jesus transfigured before the disciples. You also had Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. But what did the voice from heaven say? This is my son. Listen to him. So not only what he has to say that is new, but what he has to say in relation to what came before. And tonight we're going to spend a, a little lengthy amount of time describing these the discontinuities as well as the continuities of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we mentioned this last time and hit on it some, but I, I really feel like I got my thoughts together when I was studying this passage here tonight. And we've gone over these things before, but hopefully this will be a fresh approach for you and, and a fresh understanding because you can't read Deuteronomy like Jesus has not happened. And there's some that try to do that, and that might be very academic, but that's not the way we're going to do it. And uh, some things have very much changed since Moses spoke, Jesus has spoken, and we need to examine very carefully how are we then to handle these things. So not a new subject for us, but it's very important, and, and as long as we're in Deuteronomy, we've got to talk about it. So let's begin by looking at these first five verses, smaller sections tonight, although we are going to do two full chapters. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. We'll pause there. Moses begins to speak again. He's already spoken in the first chapters, but there was a little break. And so now he resumes. And he calls them to do three things, to hear the law, to learn the law, and then to be careful to do the law. And that could be its own three-point sermon right there, but I'll just mention it in passing. And in order to motivate them to do that, 
He returns their memory to the theophany that they had at Horeb. Now remember, Horeb generally refers to the region or the mountain range in which Sinai is the specific peak where the Lord descended. That word theophany means an appearance of God. An appearance of God. When Remember, the, the mountain was ablaze and there was thunder and lightning and voices and trumpets. And he's, he's calling them to remember that because that was the day when the covenant was confirmed. He said in verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. And this covenant, the old covenant as it's called, is outlined very basically in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. The Lord told them, now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the very general description of the covenant, which was then explained in further detail, and you might say is still being explained in further detail here in the book of Deuteronomy. But the people in Exodus 19 agreed to that. You brought us out of Egypt. Of course, we will serve you. And then God descended on the mountain in fire and spoke to them directly. And this is very significant. And he spoke to them directly the Ten Commandments. You go back and read in Exodus chapter 20, back half of 19 into chapter 20. This is God out of the fire speaking to the people. And he spoke the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, if you want to have the literal translation there. But commandment is just fine. And verse 3 is very important because he says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. There was an interesting political philosophy that Thomas Jefferson had, which was really no law is binding on the next generation. They've got to reevaluate it and determine if that's still how they're going to, to be. They're, that's the social contract theory of the Enlightenment. And, you know, he had lots of radical ideas. But however you might feel about that politically, that's not how God sees it in his Bible. He says, I know that y'all were either little bitty babies or not even born yet because this is the next generation, when the Lord descended upon the mountain, he says, but you must not think that that only applied to your parents. It applies to you. And as far as God is concerned, you were there. And God is going to treat you as that first generation. I think this gives some weight to the idea that the church is constantly looking back to the first generation of Christians to make sure that we are in line with what they did. Not that we're going to do everything exactly the same, but the important things better be the same. And I think this, is, this lends credence to that idea. Now, what exactly was this covenant? I just read it very generally in Exodus 19. What was this covenant and what was this law? And we're going to launch into a discussion of these things. So this is, this is important for us to know. The Mosaic covenant was a subsidiary of the Abrahamic promise that God gave in Genesis 12. When God told Abraham, leave your home, leave your countrymen, go to a new land that I will show you, I'll bless you, I'll make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, which in itself was a continuation of the Proto-Evangelium from Genesis 3.15, that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. It was now focused through Abraham. In Genesis 15, it was made a formal covenant between God and Abraham. And Paul makes it very clear in Galatians and elsewhere that this covenant that was given to Moses was nested within what God did to Abraham, because Paul will refer to the Abrahamic promise as trumping the Mosaic law which is important for our theology as Christians. But it was given to create, to do several different things. It was to create Israel as a formalized nation. Because remember, they were, they were slaves that had been freed. And now they were headed for their own country. And so this was, in a sense, their constitution. It was formalizing them as a nation. Not only that, it was to give them actual righteous laws to follow. God was establishing what their laws were going to be like. Not only that, it was given to establish a system of worship. Here's where you'll worship. Here's how you will worship the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of those things. And to codify the blessings and curses of their relationship to God. So I'll just run through those again if you're taking notes. It was to create Israel as a nation, to give them righteous laws, 
to establish a system of worship and to codify their relationship to God with its attendant blessings and curses. And that was, that was what it was given for. Now, if you want to look at this from a salvation history perspective, which we must do as Christians, ultimately, the Mosaic Covenant was given to prepare Israel for the Messiah, who would consummate this covenant, bring the Mosaic Covenant to completion, so that you would almost have a domino effect, that when Messiah came, he would not only fulfill Moses' covenant, he'd be fulfilling Abraham's promise, and he'd be fulfilling the promise that God made in the Garden of Eden as well. Paul tells us this in Galatians. We'll read this in just a minute. So there's all of these, you could call them primary reasons God gave the law, in addition to the ultimate reason God gave the law. And so to fulfill those reasons, God did several things with the law. And you might call these secondary reasons. That is, he revealed God's righteousness through his law, and he revealed man's unrighteousness. So it was setting up a structure for the people, but it also was teaching the world something about the relationship between God and man, that God is righteous and man is not. Peter called the law a burden that neither they nor their fathers were able to bear. It laid down the principle of sacrifice, that God will accept a blood offering for sins. He was teaching that lesson for thousands of years through the children of Israel. It has to be a perfect, prescribed, acceptable sacrifice through the appropriate high priest. And it also was to hold the nation together until Messiah could come. So you had that first list that I gave you, which was the, the structural reasons, the primary reasons it was given. We have the ultimate reason, which is we're waiting for the Messiah. And to that end, it did those things that I just described, those secondary reasons. Galatians 3.24 says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. The older translation has our schoolmaster, which is maybe not a precise translation, but it gets the point across. It was a teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was always attended with, with all of the reasons it had to make Israel a nation, etc. It was always preparing them and thereby preparing the world for Jesus. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, not only by keeping it and never breaking it, but by being the thing that the entire law had been building towards. He was not only a perfect high priest, he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice to bring to completion what God had been anticipating and foreshadowing and prophesying through the law. And when Jesus came, because he was consummating everything the law had intended to be, he made some changes. Hebrews 9.12 reminds us that he abrogated the need for sacrifice. We don't need sacrifices anymore because Christ was sacrificed once for all. That's actually one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews, is that once for all Christ has died. Mark 7.19 reminds us that Jesus brought an end to the food laws. It says in Mark 7.19, he declared all foods clean. And the book of Acts hammers that home pretty well too. Colossians 2.17 reminds us that Jesus brought an end to the necessity of holy days. Paul said, let no one bring judgment upon you in regards to a new moon or a Sabbath or any other festival. He said, because these things were a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he said, we don't need these things any longer because what they were for has been accomplished. And as we learned on Sunday night in Galatians 5, 6, we learned that Jesus Christ did away with the need even for circumcision. Because circumcision was to be a reminder of the promise. It was to be a marker between children of Israel and the Gentiles. But now that we've all been brought together in Christ, the necessity for that spiritually has been abrogated. Now, because Jesus did all of these things, and because Paul had to correct a lot of mistaken views about the old covenant, we can have a, a somewhat negative attitude of the old covenant. And I don't think a healthy church arrives at this place, but you can have this where you think New Testament good, Old Testament bad. Or, well, if it's in the New Testament, I believe it. If it's in the Old Testament, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, that's not good because <laughs> the law was not evil. In fact, 2 Corinthians says that the law was glorious. Psalm 119, the big long psalm, is all about how great God's law is. 
And you can apply it to the rest of Scripture, but he's talking about the law. It's kind of funny. People want to say, like, we don't need the Old Testament, but they really love Genesis and they really love the Psalms. It's like, you should love all of it. Because the law was always pointing to Christ. That's always where the Old Covenant was headed. That's why Jesus could say things like this in Matthew 5. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. How long? Until all is accomplished. And the reason Jesus felt the need to say that is because he was about to run through the Sermon on the Mount, explaining all kinds of things that he would say like, you have heard it said, but here's what I say. The Jews so misunderstood the law that Christ's correction sounded like abolition. They had it so wrong that when Jesus came and corrected them, they said, well, you don't even, you think we should just get rid of the law entirely. So he says up front, that's not what I'm doing, but you've got it so backwards, you can't even recognize it done properly. Remember, Jesus's interpretation of the law is the right one. This is really interesting to me because a lot of times I will see people, authors, or especially people that really have a love for Israel and the Jews, which, hey, more power to you. We should have that. But they'll say things like, well, look at what the rabbis said. Look at what the tradition said. Look at what the intertestamental literature said. And it drives me bananas because Jesus' whole ministry was a giant slap in the face to all of that. He's like, you've heard it said, but you're wrong. You're teaching traditions like they're doctrines. And then some people want to say, well, what do those traditions have to say? I'm not too interested in it, to be honest with you. Jesus was only concerned with the scripture, not the traditions. But knowing that, here's what you need to remember. Jesus's interpretation of the law, his teaching concerning the law, was fully consonant with the Old Testament. Jesus was not innovating. Jesus was teaching things that Moses had taught, that Isaiah had taught, that Malachi had taught, but that the people had missed and forgotten. Now, did Jesus build upon that and bring it to its ultimate conclusion? Yes, but it's amazing. Read through Isaiah again and mark every time you read a verse that's like, that's something that Jesus said. A lot of Jesus's most famous quotes were quotes. Oh, that's great that Jesus said that. Uh, he got that from somewhere. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is a quote from Psalm 37. Just one example among many. Jesus was not innovating. He was reminding, mostly. Old Testament teaching affirms. And what are some of the hallmarks of Jesus' teaching about the law? He taught us that ritual is subordinate to righteousness. Isn't that true? That's what Jesus said. It's not about the rituals, guys. It's about doing the right thing. The Old Testament is full of that. Samuel told Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. Isaiah would tell the people, God's not hungry or thirsty. Don't focus on the sacrifices. Focus on the heart. Micah would say, you're so worried about what God wants. Do you know what God wants? God wants you to be righteous and just. The prophets would over and over again say things like, just stop your sacrifices until you get it right. They taught that there too. Moses is going to teach that, in fact. Jesus taught that the, the center of the law was the love of God and the love for other men. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Well, that's all over the Old Testament too. All, all the examples that Jesus uh, pulled upon to teach that were Old Testament examples. So that wasn't new. He just brought it to his conclusion. Jesus taught about the coming new covenant that would extend God's grace, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. Guess what? That wasn't new either. Moses talked about that even in Deuteronomy. That's part of what God had said to Abraham. Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Zechariah talked about it. So did Jesus make, say these things to their fullest? Yes, he did, because that's what the people needed to hear. But we make a mistake when we think Jesus was running counter to the Old Covenant. He was saying, I'm fulfilling the Old Covenant. But they had so missed it that it sounded like abolition. This is why 
This is how I love to say it. People say, how much of the Old, Old Testament law do Christians need to keep? I always say it like this. None of it. And all of it. And I realize that sounds very unhelpful. But this is the case. We are both entirely free from the Old Testament law, and yet as Christians, we are entirely bound to it. Jeremiah 31:33 describes the new covenant, in fact, as the Holy Spirit writing God's law on our hearts. And that teaches both of those things that I just said, that we are to walk fully in the righteousness revealed in God's law, but as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, not bound by the letters, but bound by the spirit that inspired those letters in the first place. As a system of regulations, the law has no authority over the Christian. But as a revelation of God's heart and of true righteousness, it has deeper authority than even it had over the children of Israel. So none of it and all of it. Problems arise when people become infatuated with the specific regulations as a means of salvation. This is where problems run into. This is why Paul had to speak as strongly as he did. That's why Jesus had to speak as strongly as he did. That's why they used to have to say things like, the law is over, guys, because they were still relying on the law as their means of salvation. And there are still folks that want to do this. I've said it a million times. If you want to worship on Saturday because you want to keep the Sabbath that way, go for it. We have Wednesday night, right? We're worshiping this night too. Hope we worship every Saturday even if we're not at church. Even if you want to keep some of the festivals or keep the food laws. That's okay, that's fine. But the minute you say something like, if you don't do this, you're in sin, you've completely missed the point. And as Paul would say, you've been severed from Christ. The minute you start to look to these things to establish your salvation. Or if you say things like, I'm not saying you have to do it to be saved, but you really, God does just like you better. Paul, Paul hated that kind of thing. That's why Paul confronted Peter to his face. He's like, whenever these Jews aren't here, you live like them. But then they show up and you start living like them, trying to keep these distinctions. What's wrong with you, Peter? Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 3 through 4, talking about the Jews that had rejected Jesus. He said, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Ignorant of the righteousness of God. They didn't, know, they didn't know the first thing about what God was trying to do. They were trying to make themselves holy, Paul said. So when God brought the only means of becoming holy, which is through Christ, they rejected it. Because, well, we're sticking to the law. We don't want Jesus, we want the law. And Paul goes, why are you pitting them against each other? The law was supposed to come to completion in Jesus. Indeed, it has come to completion in Jesus. The end of the law, that's the Greek word telos. It can mean goal or conclusion or final destination. That's what Jesus was. If you love the law, it'll drive you right to Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. That's why Jesus could make changes that did not amount to abolishing the law because it was all coming to completion. That's why we can say things like salvation is not restricted to the Jews because it's no longer about being part of that generation that saw the Lord come at Sinai. And salvation is not found in the law as in keeping the regulations. It is Christ and Christ alone. So when we read this Torah as it's called, Torah means instruction or law, we read it as New Testament believers who have realized that this was written prior to its completion. We've got the whole story. You can't live in the first act. You've got to live after it's over. We're living in the epilogue, after Christ has come. So we love the law and we delight in the law, and I'll explain how we are to keep it and indeed to obey the law, and yet we are free indeed in Christ Jesus. And we'll never submit again to a yoke of slavery. So all of this to say, don't be hostile towards the old covenant. It's not your enemy unless you're using it to save you. And then even, even as I say that, it's, if you're looking for it to save you, read properly, it'll bring you right back to Jesus. 
But if you say, well, if I keep all these laws, then I'll be saved. No, the New Testament is abundantly clear on that point. And Peter makes the point, so does James in, in Acts 15. Why would you want to? Why do we want to make them try to keep all these things that we couldn't even keep when we have the fullness of the law in Christ Jesus? So I hope that answers some of your questions, that this was a good thing that was given for a good purpose, distorted along the way, but Christ stuck with what God's plan always was, and now we have a different relationship to the good law than they did in the Old Covenant. It's a better one. And in fact, it comes more alive for you and me because of Jesus and because of what he's done. And I'll show you what I mean as we read through these Ten Commandments and read them as Christ would have read them. Let's look at this. Verse 6 now, or the last bit of verse 5. He said, what did God say when he came upon the mountain in fire? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and gave them to me. At Mount Sinai... God appeared in fire and spoke audibly these 10 words to the people. And there is some difference in the exact wording between the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, but nothing that is, is of any concern to us. Moses is reminding them of the story. Why? Because the book of Deuteronomy is largely a book of laws and instructions. He's trying to lend weight to the principles and the laws he's laying down. And we have here these Ten Commandments, which open, you'll notice, in verse 6 by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments are often viewed as universal rules for society. They're, they're almost dropped out of nowhere. They're, they're not based on context or anything like that. And that's why we, we really ought to try to build our laws on them. Well, I agree that they are very useful for society, but notice that verse 6 reminds us God always ties commandments to redemption. God is not just giving them words out of nowhere. He's saying, obey these rules because I brought you out of Egypt. There's no getting out of it. There's no coming to the Bible and ripping its principles out of context and living a good life. The Bible does not permit that. And again, that would be a sermon all on its own, but I'll just say it and move on. As I said, Jesus' interpretation of the law is the correct one. And when Jesus talked about the law in the Sermon on the Mount, he called us to the ideal. Jesus did not relax the commandments of the law. He intensified them. You know these verses. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. He said, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Where did they hear that? The Ten Commandments. <laughs> and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, 
Imagine how everybody would have sat up and listened when he said that. You've heard that it was said in scripture, but here's what I say. They go, can you say that, man? Well, he could because he was God. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Down just a couple verses in verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Again, Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus approached the law, not trying to relax it, but trying to intensify it, trying to focus on the righteousness revealed in the law rather than the exact letter. As in, you can't say, well, I didn't kill anybody, therefore I'm allowed to hate whoever I want. He goes, you've completely missed the point. So he takes us back. I like to say Jesus calls us to the ideal that is represented by the law. So very quickly, because we've spent a lot of time in Exodus talking about the Ten Commandments, let's go through each of these ten and evaluate them the way Jesus would, which is what is the most intense ideal standard of righteousness revealed by each one? Well, the first one is you'll have no other gods before me. I mean, that's just straightforward monotheism, right? Don't have other gods. And culturally, that's not really a problem for us. But what's the ideal? You should never honor anything more than you honor God. What is the most important thing to you? What receives the most of your attention and your time and your energy and your love? It better be God. Because if it's not, you're violating the first commandment. The second one is you shall not make a carved image or any likeness, right? Don't make an idol. So, I mean, no idolatry. I hope you don't have idols at home. You'd be surprised how many people engage in various forms of witchcraft and think that it's somehow okay. But take it to another level, many things can become idols. I, I've been to Russia several times, and in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have icons, which are pictures of saints or pictures of Christ, and they light candles to them, and they genuflect before them, and they will doggedly fight you to the death, saying, it's not an idol, we're just venerating, provoking memories that we can then worship to. That's fine, but do you think that if Jesus were to address that in the Sermon on the Mount, he'd give you a pass on that one? We're not venerating material things. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, that means don't, don't borrow God's name for sinful purposes. The name of the Lord is holy. You don't just get to bring things in. Like you're, you're telling a stupid story and you go, oh, I swear to God. Like, my name is holy. Don't, don't mess with my name. And in fact, Jesus' name, according to Philippians, has been exalted above every other name. And we can certainly add to that cursing with the name of Jesus. Somebody tried to explain, well, when, we, when, I, when you curse and you say something, oh, Jesus Christ, I mean, isn't that kind of honoring God because he's the God we swear by? No. Because if you weren't saying that, you'd be saying something else and you're not honoring that thing by saying it. So don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Now the New Testament makes abundantly clear. Christians are specifically free from the Sabbath. But what is being revealed by that commandment? Do you rest do you take time to worship? Honor God by taking rest. I mean, it's, everybody is so anxious and depressed and fearful because we don't rest. Well, I don't have time to rest. You don't have time not to rest. And when we do rest, we've got our phone on the whole time. I don't know why I can't sleep. I know why you can't sleep. Take a break. And also, you'll notice, he urges them to give a Sabbath even to their servants and to the sojourners that work for them, reminding them, y'all were slaves before. You remember how it was. You're going to give your servants, slaves, so on, a day off. Because you remember. You're going to be compassionate to them. I've been reading a, <laughs> I've been reading a biography of Frederick Douglass lately, just as a, an aside here. And... Um, First of all, he was a, a rock-solid believer. Nobody ever talks about that because it doesn't fit whatever story. But, man, one of the things he used to do was go around speaking at churches and calling them out for using the Old Testament to excuse the things that went on in slavery in the United States. And it's, he knew his Bible, and he's like, this bears no resemblance to what the Old Testament talked about. And, um, yeah, I could talk about that more, but maybe I will someday. But just a, another reminder that, uh, I'm glad we live in an age where the gospel p 
penetrated down into our society so far to say, you know what, what are we even doing this for? Praise the Lord for that. Number five, obey your parents, right? That's the basic one. But what's the ideal? What is the ideal form of honoring your mother and father and obeying your parents? How about looking after them in their old age? That, that counts, right? How about taking their wishes and their desires for you seriously? Not that they can tell you what to do, but do you at least honor what they have to say? They know you better than everybody else. Number six and seven were already addressed by Jesus, right? Adultery and, and murder. Number eight, do not steal, right? Don't rob a bank, first of all. That's the obvious one, but don't steal time from your boss. Don't write opaque contracts. So like you, you trick somebody into thinking you're going to honor your word and then you don't. Well, it's right there, the loophole and the thing. That, that's theft as far as I'm concerned. Haven't you ever been bitten by one of those before, whether you're an insurance company or something, and you're like, you, you not only lied to me, you stole from me because I've been giving you money all this time and then the moment came for you to pay up and you refused. I, I consider that the same thing. Number nine, false witness. Now, that's very specifically don't stand up in court and lie on your neighbor, but don't lie of any kind. We're supposed to be imitators of God. The word says, who cannot lie? And number 10, covetousness. Don't covet. Don't sit there desiring something someone else has. How about, and if we want to take this to the ideal, don't be dissatisfied with your life. Don't spend your whole life complaining about how bad you've got it. That's covetousness. And the biggest thing that the 10th commandment gives us is it reminds us that the heart matters to God just as much as the act does. I saw this one Jewish rabbi debating with a Christian one time, and he said, one of the things that I really can't get behind with a Christian is you, you, it's not enough for you to say you've got to do the right thing. You say you've also got to think and feel the right thing, right? It's just, I, I can't, you know, I can't murder, but now I can't even be angry or hate the guy? To which I would say, read your own law, man. Covetousness is in there. God regulates the heart just like he regulates the hands. Now listen, we are not bound by these Ten Commandments as they were under the Old Testament, but you're still bound to obey them at an even more intense level out of love and obedience to Christ. Because through these things, God reveals what he values and reveals what is good. And that's what you're obligated to obey. That's why Jesus also said, whoever relaxes these commandments, I'm going to relax you right out of the kingdom of heaven. Christians don't chase loopholes with the commandments of God. We insist on the highest ideals within our Christian liberty, which is also true, but that lesson only makes sense when you have a heart that is desirous to obey the Lord. Verse 23 of chapter 5 now. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, never get over that, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we've seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? Point being, let's not push our luck. For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of our Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. You, Moses, you do it. And speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. What is Moses' point right now? He says, it was your idea for me to be the lawgiver. So don't complain about me being the guy, because it was your idea. Korah, Dathan, guys like that. Miriam. Verse 28, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they've spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. I bet God feels that way about Christians coming home from conferences and summer camps, right? Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Verse 30, go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, Moses, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess." 
Moses is just continuing with the story here. Back in Exodus 20, they begged Moses to be the guy. You listen to God and then talk to us because we cannot have God talking to us out of the fire all the time. We will die for sure. And God was like, hey, Moses, they're right. They're right. And in fact, Exodus 20, Moses tells the people, God came down and talked to you like this, knowing that you would be afraid, but he did it on purpose so that you would obey. The whole point of the, the theophany at Mount Sinai was to teach them to fear God. And that's the attitude they ought to have maintained. That when someone says something like, hey, let's go gather manna on the Sabbath day, that mom would smack him in the back of the head and say, don't you remember the flaming mountain? We're not messing with God's law. Moses was to be the man to go in between and teach the law. That's why they were to listen to him. He's still in the context of the book saying, why should y'all listen to me? Because that's what we decided when we made this covenant. Well, what about us? He could have spoken to us. Moses goes, you had your chance and you said, no, thank you. The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Knowing who God is, which means to fear him, is the key to all knowledge, especially moral insight. So I don't care if you are Nietzsche, I don't care if you're Sam Harris or Voltaire or Hammurabi. If you do not fear the Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. And if you do come up upon righteousness, it is only because of God's general revelation and the conscience that he gave you. Fear the Lord first. This lesson here teaches us the need for revelation from God. And through Moses, the need for an intermediary between God and man. And as you all know, Jesus was the fulfillment of both of those things. John 1.14, he said, Jesus Christ was the word made flesh. The word that the people couldn't stand to hear out of the fire became a little baby and grew up in a humble life so that he could tell them face to face. And not only that, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Remember, Moses and Elijah, that's great. But listen to my son, God said. The verse that talks about that is in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Just in case you weren't sure about his credentials. He made the world. His, whole, his point being, the book of Hebrews anyway, is I'm about to completely flip over your understanding of the old covenant law. How do I have authority to do that? Because God spoke through Jesus and he trumps everything. All your traditions, all your rabbinical writings, all your intertestamental literature, all of your own hopes and dreams are properly interpreted through Christ Jesus. Just as they in the land of Moab at this point were to heed Moses' words, we also have to heed the word of Christ. Especially what he had to say about the Old Covenant, which we've been discussing together. Getting into chapter 6 now. This is one of the, the peaks of the Old Testament, one of the mountain peaks here. might even be the peak. Now this is the commandment. So it's been all built up. Here we go. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, the chukim and mishpatim, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. These are the build-up verses, man. The greatest commandment is coming up. We're about to hear in verse 4 what is called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, listen, pay attention. It's recited by Jews to this day. Depending on the tradition, twice a day, three times a day, they're still hearing, although unfortunately their hearts have been hardened to the truth of it. There are really two parts to this statement. 
one in verse 4 and one in verse 5. And this is where we're going to spend the, most of the rest of our time is looking at these things. And they're worth it. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel. And then there are four Hebrew words. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It is a very poetic, stylized sentence. It doesn't have verbs in it. It just has the name of God, an attribute of God, the name of God, and another attribute of God. Adonai, which is that word Jehovah, Yahweh, right? Adonai Eloheinu, our God. Elohe, you hear that, like Elohim, it means God, right? And if you have new at the end, it's possessive. Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord our God, Jehovah our God. Adonai, again, Echad, which means one. Because it is so, so tight, right? It's the first rule of writing, omit needless words, right? You have four words here. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Because it's so tight, there are a range of interpretations of how to understand this. You might have them in the footnotes of your Bible in the translation here. Uh, but there's really two main senses that people try to take this. There's the traditional one, which I'm going to stand on. And then there's the, the more, not, it's not modern as in it's popular, but it's always kind of been there. And I would say that they're both true, although the traditional one is primary. The, the way a lot of folks want to push it today is when it says God is one, what it means is he's our one and only. He's the only God we've got. He's the only one we're going to serve, as in it's a warning against idolatry. It's not really saying anything about God. It's saying something about our relationship to God, right? He's, you know, Jehovah is our God and Jehovah is our only God. That is a statement of the Israelite creed. Now, is that true? Well, yes. That is true, and the Bible talks an awful lot about that. They're not to make idols. God is to be their one and only. But there's a deeper theological, metaphysical sense to what is being said here. The Lord is one, meaning he is the only God above all others, that he is alone, that there is no other God, not only like him, there's no other God, period, and I would say that is the primary sense because it's also able to accommodate the other sense. If, it, if we agree that it's saying God is one, meaning there's only one God, then of course, by extension, he should be your one and only God. And I also think that when you're looking at those words, that, that seems like the basic, obvious thing to say. This then provides for us one of the, if not the, foundational statements of biblical monotheism. In case you didn't realize this, Christians believe in one God. There is only one. That is a fact that we share with the Jews, of course, because we got it from them. You could almost call Christianity the completion of Judaism. But we also share it with Islam, although they get it terribly, terribly wrong. Isaiah 45, verse 5, the Lord himself says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There are some people, and this is especially those that love to talk about angels and demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, they, they say what you have in the Bible is not really monotheism, which means there's only one God. It's, it's, it's henotheism, which means there are lots of gods, but only one is, is on top. Saying Israel believed in other gods, but that Jehovah God was, was God over them all. And I think there's a sense in which there's some truth to that, but I, I do not like the, the abandonment of the way we've always understood this. Do we acknowledge that there are other little g gods? Yes, we do. Psalm 82 verse 6 talks about that. But these do not rise to God's level. They're not, up, they're not in the same category as him. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20, Paul kind of gives us the answer on this one. He's telling them not to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. And he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. He's saying, am I saying that there's some like, you know, God involved in the idol? He goes, no, we know that idols are nothing. They're useless. They're stupid. There is no other God. However, he continues, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. 
And there's some, well, really, it's a, it's, there's a range, and that God's at the end by himself, but that there's a range of spiritual beings. No. Angels, if I, and I included that, all heavenly beings, right? Angels are like God. They are not God. Just like you and I are like God, but we are not God. That's why I don't like describing it as henotheistic, although it, it, it does maybe expand our understanding of the Hebrew worldview a little bit. There's only one God. It's not even close. It's not God versus Satan. It's God and then everything else. And that verse, as it is used in the New Testament, I think affirms that. It's a basic article of faith in the New Testament. Romans 3.30 just casually mentions God is one. Galatians 3.20 says God is one. The whole point of that verse is God is the Gentiles God too because there only is one God. James 2.19 says again, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. He's saying this is so basic that there's only one God that even the demons believe that, that you don't even get any credit for it in God's eyes. It's so basic. Well, I only believe in one God. Great. That's kind of how James wrote. You know, James was kind of like pretty intense, right? He's like, oh, good for you. Knowing this then, this leads to our understanding of the Trinity. And you might say, well, doesn't that kind of run, op run opposite to that? Oh, no, guys. And I wish, I could, again, I wish I could talk more about this. But knowing this verse, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. Okay, you know that verse now. Is it in your head? Are you thinking about that? Hebrews, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now you hear that and we say, oh, that's kind of an intense thing to say. You mean we're all kind of like one with God? No, that's not what he meant. Although maybe at least that concerning himself. I and the Father, get that verse back up there. I want us to stare at this for a while. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is saying that he's just like God, that he is his God. Oh yeah, he is saying that. But y'all, it's deeper than that. Because he is deliberately quoting the Shema and sticking himself in it. Do you hear that? That's why they picked up rocks to stone him. This, he said, what are you, what, I've done lots of good things. What are you stoning me for? He said, you're making yourself equal with God. And we hear that and we go, I mean, is that really what he was doing? Yes, because they've been saying every day, morning and evening, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus comes and goes, I and the Father are one. Do you get the intensity of this here? And then people like Bart Ehrman want to say, Duh, Jesus never claimed to be God. What? That's how they do it in Duke. I don't know. That's, that's where he is a professor. That's why that's funny. But <laughs> I and the Father are one. He applied the Shema to himself. You, you can't even say, I and he are one. That doesn't even make sense. Because I and he are two is how you would say that. But I and he are one. He is inserting himself into the Godhead by saying that. Although he was not inserted, he always has been. Then later, of course, they would do the same thing for the Spirit, which is why we can say in Matthew 28, 19, baptize new believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul gives a Trinitarian blessing to the church. We read in Revelation chapter 1, right, that in the name of the one who, is, who was and who is and who is to come, and the seven spirits of God, and Jesus Christ. The New Testament talks about God in a Trinitarian fashion. But wait a minute, is this, is this acceptable? Can you say that? I know they said it in the New Testament, but were they right? Because it said God is one. I mean, that seems pretty strong. Is there any room in the language there for one to mean one, but like super one? Like that's what the Trinity is, right? Well, yeah, there is. Do you want to know why? Because the word echad in Hebrew is a word that describes compound unity. There are other words that mean one in that Islamic single dominant one, but echad is a word that means things coming together to become one. When the Hebrews sit down to this day for Passover, they take three unbroken matzah breads and they place them in a basket. They separate them by the cloth so that they're not touching each other. And this is called the echad, which means one. 
You have three that are not touching each other, yet together they are wrapped and they become one. And then in the middle of the meal, they reach in and pull out the second one and they break it. And at Passover, when Jesus reached into the Echad and pulled out the second matzah and broke it, he said, this is my body. The Lord was always setting it up to, re to reveal this to us. Hallelujah to our God. I mean, look at the, old the angel of the Lord who is not God, but like they talk about him like he's God or the wisdom of God or the son of man in Daniel. It's complicated unity until you get to Jesus and the fullness of revelation and the veil is lifted. And we say with Athanasius, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither dividing the substance nor confounding the persons, even in the Shema. The, the most bold statement of oneness of God in the Bible, the Lord left the door open to reveal the threeness of God in Christ Jesus. Let this be a reminder of how great and awesome our God is, first of all, but that God is one. And as we do worship the Trinity, you need to remember Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, yes, but the three are one. I like the Holy Ghost. I don't know if I like God the Father so much. That's not how it works, man. They mutually indwell one another. God is one. And number two, because God is one, there is nobody else who can help you or save you when you call out. There is no other God to whom you might answer except the Lord himself, because God is one. And verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Matthew 22, one of them, one of the listeners, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The first one given? No, the first in order of importance. This verse, verse 5, is the most important commandment God gave. And what is it? To love God. It's the Hebrew word ahav, to love God. It means to desire or to delight in someone or something. There's nothing cute or complicated behind it. It means love like you think when you hear the word love. And he says, with all of your heart, your soul, and your might. You'll notice that in the New Testament, when it translates that verse, it translates them differently. But they all amount to the same thing, which is all of you. Your heart. Everything in your emotional center. Your mind. Everything in your mental center. Your might. All of your resources and all of your body. The point is not trying to divide it up. The point is saying, love God with everything you are. Our emotional, intellectual, and physical lives are to be given over to affection for God. And I recognize, and the point is well taken, that love is a verb, right? Love isn't just gushy feelings. Okay, yeah, we're going to see that in just a moment. But I do not want to rush over the fact that the primary first commandment of the Old Covenant is to have affectionate loyalty for God. That love as an inner desire for God is the most important thing the Old Testament taught us according to Jesus. And there are others that, you know, they want to warn about people in the church that talk about Jesus like he's their boyfriend. Yeah, I, okay, that point's well taken too. But love for God remains the primary commandment. And there are some, especially guys, who... In fairness, I've had to suffer under some really feminine worship songs and every depiction of Jesus. He's got long flowing Fabio hair and all that. And yeah, okay, that's an important point. But especially you gentlemen, you need to remember that loving God is your first and primary duty. My kids, like I did when I was a kid, and say, I said, do you love me? I love you the most, but not as much as Jesus. Good. Good, because you'll love me better if you love Jesus first. The love of God is the first thing. This means that everything about you is to be oriented towards God with the joy, this delighting in who God is, with commitment to him, with desire for him. Just that, I want to be with God. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with the Spirit. 
with understanding, wanting to understand Him and desiring Him to understand you. It's love. Because the orientation of God towards the world is love. John 3.16, for God so what? Loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 4.8 says that God is love. So the primary duty of man is to reciprocate that love to our God. Not to stoically obey and call it Christianity. I don't get too excited, but I'll always do the right thing. Okay, but the primary commandment is to love the Lord your God. Well, I do everything he says, but do you love God? Do you love God? I'll never forget the story one of my professors at Liberty told that he was on the hiring committee for a while, and he said one time this guy was in there, and he was talking in Liberty, of course, evangelical Christian school. And he said, every time we talked about God, the guy seemed to kind of want to move the conversation away. And, you know, he kept on calling God the big man, and like, but he didn't really want to talk about the Lord. And so, so finally, I, this is not a normal interview question, but I asked him, what does Jesus mean to you? Or who is Jesus to you? And he said, the guy just kind of yada yada and went back to his qualifications. And he says, I walked, as soon as he walked out of that room, I looked to the guy next to me and I go, no, 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 no. Because this guy is faking it. Whatever he has, it's not a relationship with Jesus. And he said, but then there was another guy. We kind of started adding this question in after a while. And I asked him, so what does Jesus mean to you? And he said, and the man just kind of looked down. And he was quiet for about 10 seconds. And then he closed his eyes and tears started running down his face. And he said, I apologize. I'm so sorry. He said, but this man couldn't even hear the name of Jesus or be asked, what does Jesus mean to you without breaking down? And we see things like that as signs of weakness? No. Well, I've logically concluded that Jesus is the Christ and I've come to worship him. Good. But you don't get credit for that either because he already was. You were wrong beforehand. You were late to the party. <laughs> Psalm 42. I just don't like worship songs that talk about God emotionally. Really. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Panting for God. You've seen your dog pant outside? I'm so... I've got to have it. It almost makes you uncomfortable hearing me do that, doesn't it? But David said, that's how I feel about God. I've got to have him. Does the name of Jesus swell up your heart when you hear it? When Christmas time rolls around again and you, you see that nativity scene, does it stir anything in you at all? When Easter rolls around and you've heard a million Good Friday messages and yet you're still choking up listening to them, flogging Jesus and pressing a crown of thorns on his head for your sake, is there anything there at all? If there's not, you need to question yourself. We begin with obedience, but through prayer and through the word and through worship and fellowship, through time in God's presence, through meditation on what he's done, you will come to love God in truth. The Christian life is not going out to save the world. It's not to gain a religious experience. It's to know God intimately. The first thing Jesus called his disciples to do was that they might be with him, the gospel said. That's your first duty, is to be with God. Maturity in Christ, believe it or not, is not intellectual. It's emotional. Ponder that. Consider what that means. We begin by believing a set of facts. If you don't believe the set of facts, you're not a Christian. Okay, so that's, that's step one. But the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Ponder that, Christian. That's what it means to worship God. This Shema is the heart of the law. And it's the key to the covenant Moses was presenting. So remember, as we read all of these laws, the overarching, most important thing was to love the Lord your God with everything you've got. God was building a relationship with Israel, not just one of king and subject, but of friends. Jesus told his disciples, I've called you friends. More than that, of husband and wife. How often will the Lord compare Israel to his wife or the church to his bride? It's a relationship of love, not just loyalty. They were not just to obey the law of God, but to delight in the person of God, as we must it was never about ceremony. 
It was about cultivating a love for Jehovah God. My time is, is just about up here. I'm going to read these last, this last section and, and I'll just summarize it. I didn't want to go slow through these, these passages. but Verse 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Can I just say that in John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you're going to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you need to obey his commandments. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. That's when they begged for water and Moses struck the rock. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. That you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give you your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It is the risk of every generation that you will lose the memory of what God has done and forget why you obey his commandments. And the risk is true for us too. We're watching around us a generation of church kids losing their grip on Christ and his new covenant. They've forgotten because we separated the commandment from Christ himself. We're losing it. But we are living in the glorious fulfillment of everything that God promised Israel. We cannot lose sight of the cross, the empty tomb, and the fullness of his word. So today, make it your focus to love God and vow to express that love through obedience to his commandments. Chase the ideal. Live up to God's standard. For the grace of God, which has liberated you from the law, has also brought to you by the Holy Spirit the ability to keep the law for the first time. And because God is one, there is no other help. There is no other hope and there is no other righteousness to be found. So commit your way into the Lord and he'll bring you into that promised land.